everyone. My name is Kevi, and I'm a last year computer science student. Now I'm going to read a passage from Acts. You can find it on the second page of the blue Now, now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to, the, to, uh, proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they, were, when they heard him and saw the signs that he did, four unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came up man, uh, of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lamb were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Verse 14. Now, when the apostle at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When a day, then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, uh, an eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit said, Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I? How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, before his share is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariots to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came out from, came out out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Exodus, and as he passed through the preach the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Most of you were starting kindergarten. 
the nation of Iraq was being liberated. So was it described in uh, of decades rule of a despot named when you know Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein. Well done. And he indeed had overseen the deaths of thousands of Iraqi citizens, probably tens of thousands. His reign was a reign of terror, a reign of fear. He was most feared by his closest compatriots, his ministers under him. And he, they feared him most because he was hated by so many. How does that work? To maintain his position of power, Saddam Hussein would secretly approach one of his ministers and would get them to hatch a plan, a false plan that would never be carried out, but to hatch a plan to assassinate Saddam Hussein <coughs> and to conspire with one or two of the ministers uh, who Saddam wanted to test the loyalty of. And if the plan was not revealed back to Saddam Hussein immediately by the co-conspirators, then they would be executed. Hence is the way of Saddam maintaining power. Fear reigned throughout his ministry. If anyone said the slightest word of dissent or dissatisfaction with Saddam, what would you do? Would you dare just let that pass? Would you... No, you'd take it all back to Saddam. To keep your own head. And fear reigned. Such is the way with despotic rulers. Acts presents us with a despotic ruler. In Jesus. You might think that doesn't sound like Jesus. But for a moment, the word despot means to have a ruler with absolute unlimited power. An autocrat. It has very negative connotations because most human autocrats and total rulers use their power to oppress and keep people in line with fear who are under them. But how is Jesus' total power different to most despotic rulers that we know of, hear about? Well, we're going to see how Jesus' total rule continues to play out it's been a blistering start to the mission of Jesus, reign from heaven, and the mission of his word going out to the nations. The steps are huge. Thousands turn to Jesus and follow him in one day, and many multitudes are added in times after that. And then the, the unimaginable happens. As Ryan mentioned, uh, as we kicked off, Stephen who testifies to seeing the risen, ascended, enthroned Son of Man, Jesus at the right hand of God, he is put to death in the very moment of him testifying to the reign of the Son of Man. As the Lord watches over his death from heaven. This total rule of Jesus we saw last week watches over the death of Stephen. And then Saul, who we were introduced to last week, has a grasp at the opportunity to decimate the church in Jerusalem. And 
so they are scattered. Jesus doesn't watch on in disinterest or unaffected, as we'll see today. He uses this most violent act of opposition since the death of Jesus himself to bring about the violent persecution and scattering of the church, which thrust the gospel message with God's people out of Jerusalem and into the surrounding cities. Actually, I'll come back. And so we read last week. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And so we've reached the next phase of this outworking plan of the reign of Jesus. Now as we do look at this part of God's word, I'm going to lead us in prayer. Prayer is asking God for his help. His word, that's right, to ask him to help us understand it. I'm going to lead us in prayer if you want to. You can say amen. Lord, thank you for your word to us. Thank you for what we've read here today and what we're looking at from Acts chapter 8 and 9. Lord, we pray that you would open our hearts to your message. Help me to be able to speak it well and clearly and accurately. Help us to respond in obedience and faith. Amen. Well, we, we enter this new phase where we have this guy whose name is Philip who enters the scene. We've already met Philip. We met him last week in chapter 6. He was one of the ones, one of the seven, who was set aside for the food distribution to the widows in Jerusalem. And, like Stephen... He actually doesn't do much food distribution. Well, not that it's recorded for us. Anyway, uh, like Stephen also, Philip instead does quite a bit of preaching, as we read in that, in that passage. Unlike the apostles who are appointed to preach the message in Samaria, but haven't yet, Philip preaches the message in Samaria. And... That's because the apostles, the apostles who are down to preach in Samaria, have not yet left Jerusalem. In fact, going from chapter eight, verse one, when the persecution of the church in Jerusalem happens, everyone is scattered out of Jerusalem except the apostles. They're the only ones that are left. Also, like Stephen, Philip is very apostle-like, though he doesn't have that term attached to him. Like the apostles, Philip does great signs. Like the apostles, he heals many who are paralysed or lame. Like the apostles, he preaches the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus and baptised men and women. Unlike the apostles, Philip does all this in Samaria because the apostles are in Samaria. Now, I won't labour that point too much. Their mission was to preach and testify to Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all the ends of the earth, the apostles. And now we have Philip doing it instead. Now someone did ask me last week, do I think that the apostles were being disobedient by staying in Jerusalem, since they had that charge and that mission to go out? Uh, is Luke trying to get us to see that the apostles we were doing the wrong thing, staying in Jerusalem? Well, I don't know about them being disobedient. Uh, but what we do see being reinforced by Luke is that it's God's 
project that he enacts. Sure, he's enlisted the apostles to be his missionaries, to be his agents, but he's not dependent upon them and their initiative. He is the one who brings the initiative. He's the one who has the plan and has his timing. And so if you look in verse 14 there, uh, you can see God's timing and God's initiative. Verse 14, now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they, they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The people in Samaria, just outside of Jerusalem, or somewhere outside, way up there, there's Jerusalem down here, Samaria is way up the top, that's where Philip got off to. They've received the word of God, they've been baptised into the name of Jesus, having believed, but they've not received the Spirit. Why not? Is it because, well, something else hasn't happened to them? Don't you receive the Spirit when you put your faith in the message of the Gospel and believe in Jesus' name? Or are we meant to receive the Spirit later on, like these people do, as a second blessing? And if it's not that, then why didn't these Samaritans, when they heard the message of Jesus, receive the Spirit? Well, if you've never thought about this before, and this is completely foreign to you because you've never actually been here before. Well, welcome, Mom. It's great to have you. Uh, now's your chance to have a think through it. And perhaps people around you haven't really thought much about it either, so you're on, probably on a level playing field. But why do you think, why do you think the people who heard the gospel up in Samaria didn't receive the Spirit? I'll give you 30 seconds or so with people around about you. And we're learning here, so you can say anything at all, and I won't say that's wrong. Um, just thought. Um, so, any volunteers? Simon Jones. Would you like to volunteer? Sure. Oh, <laughs> thanks. Get rid of what are your thoughts? David and I are trying to work it out where the Bible is trying to But we, our idea, which is yet to be confirmed or unconfirmed by the Bible, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is that. Perhaps they're at, with the apostles being given the instruction to go all around the world, they're also, through that, are also the only ones that the Holy Spirit is given constantly, or something like that. He's the only one. That is, is, it seems to be the way, so we're seeing this, the Bible talk about the Holy Spirit coming down after, I couldn't believe when the Holy Spirit was to say, it's the Holy Spirit come down. Because after Peter does his talks, the Holy Spirit comes. Okay. Uh, does anyone here, but well, don't have to be humble, uh, here have the Spirit of God? I'm glad to see some hands. <laughs> it's very encouraging. Um, who here received it from the laying on hands of the apostles? <laughs> so some. Yes, okay. Anyone want to improve on Simon's answer? It's actually on the point. Uh, 
Um, the one thing that Philip isn't is a nominated apostle, one of the twelve of the Lord Jesus. And the ministry of the apostles is vitally important to God's plans. They are the people that God has appointed to have authority in the church as they declare the message of the kingdom. And so, as per Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when Jesus personally addresses the twelve, he says, you will be my witnesses, to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then all the ends of the earth. Not that the apostles will be the ones who put their hands on every person who ever hears the message and believes, but rather, what we've got in the plan of Jesus are these marker points. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then all the ends of the earth. And what you see is, it's when the gospel goes to those new areas, it's actually through the apostles, almost like a, a stamp of approval, that yes, this is actually part of God's plan. These are the approved workers of God, bringing the, the Spirit to this new part of God's plan. They're not required by God to be used. Uh, still, God still chooses to use them. They're not required uh, to, uh, for God to work. And you can see it because God's on the move. He's setting the pace. It's his program. And he's using unexpected people like Stephen and Philip. And the apostles are sort of having to play catch-up, aren't they, as God drags them from place to place. In verse 14, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word... They sent to them Peter and John. And then we find out after they lay their hands on the people there and the Spirit is given to that region, they go back to Jerusalem. But I won't labour that point. They go back to Jerusalem. <laughs> well, this God setting the initiative is reinforced in the next part of the story, in the next account, with Philip and the Ethiopian in verse 26. Now, angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. Okay, so you can see on our map here, there's Samaria up there, and the road that he travels along is down to Gaza, the desert road, which takes Philip from the north to the south, past Jerusalem, where all the apostles are. But they stay in Jerusalem. This is a desert place, and there's a chariot going past, carrying a eunuch, a treasury official of Queen Candace of Ethiopia. It's probably more likely what we would call Sudan uh, these days, where he, where he comes from. And verse 29, the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And Philip runs up, and hears him reading from Isaiah 53 out loud and asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And the unit says, how can I unless someone guides me? Don't just stand there, uh, jump up here and talk with me. And he invites him up to do a one-to-one -one in the chariot <laughs> Isaiah 53. Philip begins with Isaiah 53, it's what he's got open at the time, and tells him the good news about Jesus. Yeah, take this passage away and go and have a have a chew on it for a while. It tells us a lot about understanding God's word and the the exegetical work, the just the work of understanding the, 
the passage, we're understanding the Old Testament, uh, how it well, how it's something that's been done by believers all through the ages to actually point to Jesus. It's a great model that Philip gives us. Well, very quickly, the eunuch believes, and he's wanting to be baptised out in this desert place that, where this guy Philip just happens to be, and lo and behold, there's some water in this desert place. Um, and the eunuch says, I probably should get baptised. Philip says, yes, that's good, let's get baptised, and he's baptism completed, and Philip is spirited away, and the eunuch sees him no more, and he's very disappointed. No, he's not. He gets in his chariot again and continues on the way home back to Ethiopia and Queen Candace, having now believed in the Lord Jesus. I don't know if you can really hear it and see it, but God's in control. You wouldn't do that as a strategy, would you? Let's go find some people to bring the message of God to in a desert place on a road where there's probably not too many people. You wouldn't think of that as a strategy, but God's in control here. He's very much the one calling the shots and the plans. And also, we notice Philip, verse 39, uh, sorry, verse 40, uh, Philip found himself at Azotus. He sort of came to, having been dragged around, and he passed through, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns that Philip came to Caesarea. So you can see he's ended, he's, he's ended up down here at Azotus, <coughs> then made his way up north, up the coast, on a surfing trip, and <laughs> preaching the gospel as he goes. He's just looking for all the opportunities and uh, makes the most of it. And we actually find, we, there's one more occurrence of Philip that we hear of in Acts chapter 21 when Paul is now having his ministry and heading off to Rome. Acts 21 verse 8, on the next day, this is Luke speaking, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea where we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. There you go. Um, <laughs> He never left Caesarea. Well, not that we know of, anyway. He's, he's set up home there. And he settled down and by those serfs. And so <laughs> has four daughters who prophesy. They're also in the word ministry, like his dad, like their dad. Thank the Lord for the Philips of this world. Who, well, willing, he just got dragged wherever, willing to speak the gospel to wherever. And if you even have a fraction of the zeal of Philip, the zeal for the Lord, to get out and about and speak the word, then do so. Whether it's looking for chariots, I wouldn't recommend that as a strategy. But you know, get on 55A or 55C, and just round, round, around, around, and just look for people that are reading Isaiah 53. Uh, or you read it out loud and see if someone wants to respond. Use your zeal, use whatever opportunities that you've got, even as a fraction of what we see here, to actually see the message go out. It might be that you'd like to have that sort of zeal, but no way in the world would I even think about doing that. Well, grab someone else and get them to teach you how. One of your faculty leaders, even today, grab them and say, would you show me how to walk up to somebody and just speak of the Lord Jesus? Uh, and away you go. It's the thing that, it's the activity that Jesus really is on about.
But the message here is not so much be like Philip, but that God is in control of his mission. It's clearly his work. It's his initiative. It's his power. He used all manner of situations unexpected, all manner of people unexpected, to send his word out into the world. But wait, there's more. We meet this guy called Saul. Saul, who we met last week, after Stephen's death, he entered house after house, dragging men and women off to prison. And now he re-emerges. And that first part of chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found anyone belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them to Jerusalem. But the Lord has other plans for Saul. And as he goes on his way, verse 3, now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. Paul, the great opponent of God and his plans and his people, has an overwhelming experience of reality, as it really is. He thought the world was all about something completely different. In this experience of the king of the world, he recognises there's a reality, a real reality, that jams his own reality and crushes it. Paul has an overwhelming experience of the king of the universe. The reality that the Jesus he hates is the Jesus who reigns over him totally. And the Lord Jesus who reigns and who loves his people so much as the risen king that when his people are persecuted, he says that he is persecuted with them. Saul, we know, hasn't met Jesus when he was on earth. But as a persecutor of the church, Jesus from heaven can say to him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? When Stephen was martyred, Jesus watched on from heaven, not in helpless horror, but in sovereign pain, working his reality according to his sovereign plan. He's through to the day with us. When you are mocked in class, that may not personally right there against you personally, although that may happen, that has happened for being Christian. When Christianity is misrepresented in your in your lectures, tutorials, amongst friends, when all the evils of the world are traced back to Christian mission, everything that's wrong with the world. Know that. Jesus feels that discomfort. Jesus feels that pain. Jesus feels that disadvantage if it comes to you that way. And 
he knows, and yet his plans are not thwarted. You may feel like a failure, not knowing how to respond. You may feel completely overwhelmed with, this does not feel good, this does not feel right, and isn't right. But know that Jesus reigns, and his reality, the reality of him as king, has not changed. Many, like Saul, seek to crush the Christian church or people's faith in Jesus. But with all the power in the universe that Jesus has to easily crush his enemies, what Jesus does here is to crush Saul's life, his plans, his hopes, his loves, his sin, his rebellion. He crushes in Despotic love, Jesus crushes him and in mercy raises him to life. Real life. With a new mission. Jesus says, rise and enter the city and you'll be told what to do. And led into Damascus, he's blind and eats nothing, nothing for three days. Doesn't drink anything for three days. And like with Philip, the Lord here is coordinating all the action and all the detail. Uh, he gives Google Map directions almost to Ananias, who's now in the city. Pick it up in verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him, so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The Lord continues to coordinate with great clarity. They've never met each other. They don't know each other. Saul's never met Ananias, wouldn't have a clue where he is. And neither does Ananias know where Saul is. But the Lord coordinates it all. Ananias finds his house, finds Saul, laying hands on him to regain his sight. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptised, and taking food, he was strengthened. Amazing. For an event, and a man whom God is going to use to shape the world for the next 2,000 years with the message of the gospel going out to the nations. This is a very plain account of his conversion and what happens. It's very little description of Paul with his emotional state. No doubt it was very emotional. Does he burst out in praise at this moment? Does he burst out in tears of joy? We don't know. It's just not described. We know that he prayed. We know that he was baptised. You know, he ate some food afterwards. I'll take that one as guidance. Uh, eat some food. Later on, Paul actually reflects on his own conversion in his letter to Timothy. And this is how he describes what happened 
in 1 Timothy 1 verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Saul, Paul now, as he calls himself, sees and understands clearly at some distance exactly what God has done in him. He's the chief of sinners, the foremost, the one who sought to destroy the only church of Jesus that existed at that time. To snuff it into nothing. And yet, the Lord has mercy on him. In his sovereign love, he crushes Saul's rebellion and gives him new life. He begins the chapter back in chapter 9, to remember, breathing words of threats and murder. And now he ends breathing the life-giving message of Jesus in the gospel. Jesus uses his sovereign rule and power in the most unexpected ways, the most unworldly-like ways. We use power to get our way with despotic rules, use their power to get their way for their own good. Jesus uses his sovereign power not to just get his own way, but actually take the heart of Saul and turn it from being an enemy to making him a chosen one, a beloved brother, a beloved servant such that Saul's heart is to serve the Lord. And Saul's heart is to declare God to be the king of, and Jesus to be the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him be honour and glory forever. That is power, isn't it? Not when you can just make your enemy do whatever you want, but turn them such that they love you and respond to you. Here we have the merciful, patient, loving rule of the Lord Jesus. Paul seeks to destroy such love, destroy such rule, but then recognises that this is the rule that will extend across the world, like his words, into our day today. So I have to ask you, where do you stand with the rule of Jesus? who rules from heaven now. Do you, as a one who willingly accepts his rule, or one who would seek to deny it, and perhaps destroy it? Jesus says, and shows in the story of Saul, that anyone can come to him. The worst and worst of sinners can come to him. The worst of rebels can receive grace and 
you haven't done it, make sure you do that. Uh, just a point of note, if you haven't do that, you could always just keep on that thing, I'd like to read the Bible with someone, and someone will be in contact with you. Uh, but don't let the opportunity go past. And if you do know and love the, the Lord and his message, you have received from Paul, and use the zeal that the Lord has given you to send that message out to those around you. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the rule of the Lord Jesus. We thank you that his rule from heaven is not one that destroys, but one that gives life. We thank you that you had mercy on Saul, though he was the worst of, of opponents and reigns. We thank you for saving him and showing that anyone can be brought into a relationship with you. Lord, we pray that we might uh, rejoice in that message. And we pray that we might seek to have others uh, join us in serving the Lord Jesus. Amen.